Greetings, my name is Griffin Schaefer. And my name is Scott Peterson. And this is episode 54 of Inside Quizzing. A podcast about Bible quizzing for folks who love the Bible. And in this episode 54, we are going to be doing a quick overview of 1 Peter chapter 3. And then we're going to spend the, the rest of the episode this time talking about things that aren't really at all related to quizzing, but actually, if you squint, are related to quizzing. So we're going to be talking about things that are sort of existing in the broader world outside of quizzing. I know that's kind of scary to think that there is a world outside of quizzing because really everything should be quizzing. But I guess there is a world that's out there and it has some things that happen and some good ideas happen in the world beyond quizzing that uh, may have some, not implications, but interesting ideas that we can pull into quizzing to make ourselves better, make our teams better, make the district better, make quizzing as a whole better. So, uh, and just some kind of ideas that we're going to be circulating around with that. So with that said, let's jump into chapter three, first Peter. So Scott, what are your thoughts? Well, I will jump right into the on-the-fly stats of the chapter. It's 22 verses, so it should not pose um, problems for quote quizzers or chapter verse reference quizzers. Um, it looks to be fairly key within PNW. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11. So half the chapter is going to be key. Um, that's quite a lot. There is a good spread of uniqueness within, within this chapter, but it definitely looks to be centered in a couple verses. Verses 3, 4, and 8. Um, and maybe 21, are very, very heavy on the global unique words. Um, I think there's going to be a lot of good reference questions of other types. Um, there's definitely some multiple answer questions. I see one in verse 3. Um, not quite one in 21. That's a positive negative. Um, but then also some good reference questions. Um, this is the way, and talking about husbands, or um, there's a do not in verse 9. Um, verse 17 probably has a good good number of possible chapter verse reference questions. So it's kind of like a lot of chapters in this material. It's a very manageable length, leading to um, not overly difficult chapter verse reference and quote questions. Uh, and then there's a, a high percentage of key verses and a really good mix of uniqueness throughout the chapter, as opposed to some narrative material where you can get into you know, 10 straight verses, and there's maybe one global unique word in that whole span. And that's just not the case in most epistles, but Hebrews and First and Second Peter might be among the most unique material um, that we encounter. Yeah, indeed. Yeah, looking at it uh, just visually, there's an awful lot of blue here. So uh, quite a bit of globally uh, unique words. And I know uh, for uh, folks up in CMD who are using CBQZ now and uh, you're seeing the blue, that's what it means. It means it's a global uh, keyword. And there's quite a few of them in chapter three. The other thing I'd say about chapter three, it, this one... I mean, well, like like so many chapters, there's a lot of incredibly rich uh, uh, thought and rich value that comes out of the words, of course, because they're divinely inspired uh, scripture. But this one in chapter three in particular may be one that you want to um, memorize after 
you know, read through it a couple of times and then maybe consider reading a commentary or two around uh, chapter three. Just It doesn't have to be anything particularly in depth, but just to sort of put some of the these verses into sort of a larger context in terms of uh, the time in which Peter was speaking and, and the relevance of these verses today. And that might help you in your, you know, uh, to have that as kind of background before you roll into the full on word by word memorization. Uh, take a peek at, uh, you know, seven, eight, nine in particular. There's going to be, I, I have a feeling, a spidey sense of a lot of questions coming out of there. Uh, verse eight, finally, uh, globally a uh, keyword there. Uh, several other keywords, like-minded is considered one word, not two, because of the uh, short hyphen there. So there's a few of those sort of situations, uh, not very many overall in the material with the, the sort of the hyphenated words there, but keep that in mind. Um, yeah, but otherwise it's a fairly straightforward chapter. You know, it's only 22 verses, so it's not particularly long. You can certainly memorize the entire thing. Uh, and then, uh, it's actually fairly, I think, easy to memorize in terms of, of the content, uh, a lot of kind of anchor words and anchor concepts, uh, as you're working your way through here, definitely do what you can to memorize references. There are only 22 of them, but the better you can lock references into the memorization of the material as you're going through it, the easier things will be certainly for reference questions. But I think Eve also as a, as an index to be able to pull out material, even for standard questions, uh, as the case may be. I have a couple interesting thoughts. Um, one is, a, well, they're actually both questions for you. I found that in First and Second Peter, the location, the physical location on the page, because um, I studied from the reference material, uh, so it looked like this, but it was printed out onto normal sheets of paper. But the physical location on the page for First and Second Peter often kind of coincided, like chapter three was on the right side, kind of you know, the bottom half or something um, for both First Peter and Second Peter. And that was kind of another kind of subtle thing that my mind used to figure out where I was. And so I could, fi I found myself mixing up books. And I was curious if you have any ways around this problem. I don't have any particular ways around it, but I have experienced exactly the same thing. So obviously I'm highly biased in favor of CBQZ, but I can't memorize with CBQZ. Like I've, I've tried really hard and it just doesn't work for me because uh, yeah, I, I think because there's no tactile physical nature of where any verses happen to be displayed, right? They all sort of display in exactly the same place and I can scroll. So there is no physical context uh, around these verses, you know, where they are materially. So for me, I use, I, I actually do something crazy. I cut down trees and turn them into paper and then I print the material onto the paper and I, and I use that in hand physically. I'm kind of old school though. I mean, I, I still like reading physical books instead of eBooks. I mean, I, I have a huge eBook library. I read eBooks, but if I given the choice, I would rather have a physical book because there's, there's something in that tactile experience that for me just makes it easier to approach. And it may just be because, you know, I'm old and that's what I grew up with and that's what I'm used to. But uh, if I print out the material and I'm memorizing it, I don't get the, I don't get the, you know, what's a unique word uh, or anything like that as I'm, as I'm reading through, but I'm able to sort of like underline and I, I don't really, well, underline isn't the right word. I sort of, I make 
marks as I'm going through the page. I'll like sort of, um, so like as I'm dividing up a, a verse in my mind and it has nothing to do with the meaning. It's all around the words, right? So like in verse eight, finally, all of you slash, right? And I'll put a slash right there between it and then say, be like-minded slash, be sympathetic slash, love one another slash, be compassionate and humble. And like, I, I memorize kind of these blocks, these little kind of blocky things. And I put the slashes there and how I draw the slashes on the page is slightly different every single time because it's, you know, it's a human making little tiny micro errors every time I put a slash there. And so what I'm drawing on the page physically actually creates kind of a pattern. Uh, so like if I'm looking at chapter three, it'll all fit on one page. And then as I'm marking this up with little slashes and, and kind of circles and underlines and so forth, that pattern exists as sort of a visual marker in my head, which lets me recall it a little bit better. Maybe not word for word accurate, but like I can remember the context a little bit better of verses clumped together that way. That's very interesting. And I think it just shows that all brains work differently. And the more ways that you can give your brain um, something significant or different um, to retain the material is going to help you. I had a question about verse one. Um, you can write a chapter verse reference question in the same way. What on verse one for that question, what would you say is the answer Griffin in the same way? What submit yourselves to your own husbands so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be one over with Okay. So I see where you're going with this. I think it's a question of submit yourselves to your own husbands. Stop or the entire rest of the verse. Um, I don't know. Obviously, as a, as a as a quiz master, I think either way is completely fine. I would say both are valid in the same way. What submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that I'd probably pull it up. I'd, I'd probably pull it to the end of the verse. Gotcha. Well, actually, that's not what I was um, asking. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, um, what were you asking? I don't have to get into the specifics, but we're in a quiz, and um, this question was asked. Quizzer quoted backwards methodically, um, got to submit yourselves to your own husbands, still no prompt from the quiz master. In the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands, no prompt. Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves, prompt came. Um, the quizzer calculated that they should have been prompted at in the same way if that's what was needed. And so they gave wives what, which is a valid chapter verse reference question with, I mean, just one answer. Mm-hmm. And was ruled incorrect because the question that the quizmaster needed was in the same way what, with the answer being wives submit yourselves to your own husbands. Hmm. Was it challenged? Um, it was not because of extenuating circumstances. Hmm. But um, I'm, I'm wondering if you would either think it rises to invalidity because of tricky or misleading or other, or if you just think it's bad and should remain, or if you think it's a good question as written. Yeah. Okay. So I think it's, I think it's a fine question. Um, I don't think there's anything wrong with the question of, of starting in the same way. What, um, I think wives is better, but I don't, but by a tiny bit, um, eh, no, never mind. I think they're, I think they're equivalent, um, in goodness. Um, both are, both are equally valid. Uh, I would say in the, this is a case from what you're describing anyway, it's, it sounds like this is a case of a Quizmaster making a mistake and the quizmaster should have just said, 
uh, yeah, I made a mistake. I should have prompted you. I'm assuming that there was some kind no, of no, no. pause, right? No, no, no. It's not that they made the, the... – so the question was in the same way, what? Okay. And the answer was, wives, submit yourselves to your husbands, to your own husbands. Ew. Ew. See, I hate that, though, because it's, it's, it's separated, right? Sure. Um, but I know that you don't like it, but would you say anything stronger about it? So the question is in the same way what it's a chapter verse reference and wives is required. Oh, gosh. See, I, I think that's a poor question then. I think and this is the thing. I think I think I can't point to anything in the rule book other than the trickier misleading, but I don't think that it's trickier misleading. I think it it ought to be invalid because there isn't a way to answer it properly um, sure and i think i agree with that point but in this case i mean it was an important meet the question was in all likelihood not written by the quiz master right. so in that situation the quiz master is really only going to throw out that question if they think it is like pretty invalid yeah right they're not going to throw it out because they're like eh, it's not my favorite there's nothing – that's the thing. There's nothing in the rule book that, that makes it invalid. I don't think it rises to the level of tricky or misleading. I I hate the question. Um, so now that I understand the, the – I think it's really the – it's not so much the question, it's the answer. I, I Now that I understand, I, I dislike it, but it's valid. Um, yeah. Would I accept a challenge? I uh, I don't know. I don't, I don't, this is the problem. Like I don't, let's say it was challenged. I'm not sure how I would, I would rule. I would want to rule that it's, it's bad and I would throw it out, but I can't find, I can't see anything in the rule book that would let me do that. Unfortunately, I think that's where I would lie too. Cause I think it's just awful. And I have such empathy for reference quizzers who like, you literally can't really get this one, <laughs> you know? Um, but I don't know that I would say it's trickier misleading to the point that it is invalid. I probably would end up deciding that, but I don't think there's anything else in the rule book for me to call this question and answer as written invalid. Right. Well, at some point in the future, um, maybe not, you know, now and maybe not next year, maybe in a hundred years, uh, somebody will wise up and adopt the Griffin standard for writing questions, which will not have any splits and this problem will go away. Well, maybe so. <laughs> <laughs> I hope to live to that day, that wonderful, awesome day when split answers are no longer a thing. But um, yeah, I mean, I don't know. Maybe, maybe this is an opportunity in the rules to say thou shalt not write a question that's a reference question that can't be answered. Um, but I mean, how on earth do you write that kind of a rule? You'd have to be very careful about that. Well, and... It's already been decided that that's not what people want, right? By saying that on 50-50 reference questions, you have to pick right the first time. Because um, that reasoning was, well, you jumped before the question was finished. In fact, you jumped before the question was even started, the you know text part of it. Yeah. Um, and so you just have to take your lumps at that point. And I think that the people who think that would think the exact same thing about this case. Yeah, I agree they would think that. I think that they are thinking wrong. Um, I mean, I, I, my, I'm from the perspective of if you have the material 100% perfectly memorized, you should be counted correct unless you say something wrong. Like, like if you, if you have the material perfectly uh, memorized and you are able to quote it word perfectly without error, like I just can't bring myself 
to say that it's justifiable to count you wrong. Um, I, I think there's a situation where like, you know, if you're talking about a quote question and it's, you know, verse 30, you know, and then you stop and you don't get the next syllable or something and then you have to guess and you're like 34. No, I was asking for 35. Uh, okay. That's sad. That's unfortunate, but I total that's, that's just the way things roll. Um, but I don't know. I can see I can see somebody making the argument to say, well, Griffin, the question portion, the, the words of the question portion of a chapter verse reference are fundamentally no different than the verse reference from a quote question. And if somebody jumps too fast on that, you have no problem counting them incorrect. You shouldn't have a problem counting them incorrect for the for the CVR. And I'm like, OK, yeah, I see the point. I think I think that that is a valid thought, right? But I think that pushing it forward on reference questions is a net like disincentive to memorize. Whereas I don't think it's a disincentive to memorize like quote questions when if I jump on third, I have to guess which one in the thirties it is. I don't know. That it like feels way reasonable as a quizzer to be like, well, I just have to guess at this point. But if I jump on a reference question, it can narrow it down to these two small things and I have to pick it right the first I don't know. That seems demotivating to me. Yeah, exactly. And and to take it a step further, on a chapter verse reference, I'm waiting for the verse number. So if it's like a 34 versus a 35, and I jump on 30, and I guess 4, and I get it correct, let's say it is a 34, right? I'm making the exact same jump speed and uh, on 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 the syllable count for the reference as I would on a quote question. Um, but yeah, that point aside, I think you're exactly right. I think it's demotivating to have a question that ought to be answerable based on a perfectly timed jump that becomes unanswerable because of the way that it's worded. I think that's, yeah. Like I think in the most general of senses, it's consistent to say that, Hey, if you jump at a certain speed, there's a chance you will not know what the answer is with complete certainty. Right. Um, but I think we, we want to be doing things that encourage people to memorize and work hard. And in this case, I think a key point of what you're saying is that the specific kind of structure of the question and answer is unknown to the quizzer when they jump. Um, they don't know that it's the special case, and that doesn't really exist for any other question type. You know what I mean? It's not yeah. like you jump on a quote and you guess verse 34, and then three quarters of the way into it, they're like, ah, it's this special kind, and you guessed wrong, you know? Yeah, yeah, indeed, indeed. All right, well, anything else on Chapter 3? No, I think that's it on chapter three. All right. Well, let's move on to the first of our conversation points of things that have nothing to do with quizzing, but actually really instead have everything to do with quizzing. And the first is uh, we're calling it the VAR thread, the V-A-R thread. Uh, this is something that, uh, I don't know, was it yesterday or the day before? Uh, Scott texted me a, a reference to a Twitter thread that has nothing whatsoever to do with quizzing, but actually has everything to do with quizzing. So, Scott, what you want to kind of describe what that was all about? Yeah, so VAR thread um, refers to the introduction of video review in soccer. Um, Soccer refereeing. So VAR stands for Video Assisted Referee. And this thread was saying how in soccer, the introduction of technology, so video review, has actually seemed to make things worse. Um, fans are universally upset or dissatisfied with the state of refereeing and how, like, what the outcomes are. And one of her kind of 
theories or tenets was if all the fans don't like it, then it's failed to a large degree, even if you can argue or even state objectively that the decisions are more in line with the rule book. Um, but she was she was drawing a contrast between other sports, namely rugby, cricket, and tennis, who have also adopted technology um, kind of video review, but all the fans really in, like appreciate and value the improvements that have been made because of it. And the distinction that she saw between them was that in rugby, cricket, and tennis, the rules were already stated very objectively. Like in tennis is a good example. What's in or out, right? We have lines. The ball has to be in or out. And I'm sure the wording around it is very clear and ironclad and not vague or ambiguous. So, you know, years ago, the referees just had to look at these balls going 120 miles an hour, 140 miles an hour, and decide if they were in or out, and there's a large amount of human error there. Well, in the age of technology, we can know exactly whether the ball was in or out, and almost instantly, and everyone is fine with it because we want that, right? That's what the rule book says. Contrast that to soccer, where two of the biggest rules that have been scrutinized with video review is um, handballs and offsides. And I believe the language defining um, either one or both of those involves the term clear and obvious, which is definitely written for a human referee running around on the field trying to ascertain if a player illegally touched the ball with their hand, right, or were offsides. Um, and most fans would be okay with some level of inaccuracy by a ref in real time running with the players. But now we add in video review and we see like, oh, a flutter of a shirt or a toe was offsides. And so by rule, this means that the player was offsides, but it's somehow, it doesn't sit well. Like it's, it feels like this isn't what the rule was meant to be. And, um, again, this person's theory was that because the rule is written ambiguously with kind of clear and obvious language. Now, even when assisted with video review, humans are now, they have to interpret this ambiguous rulebook language with way better evidence, but that doesn't change how the rulebook is written. And I saw some parallels to quizzing. Um, context is not defined, right? Like what qualifies as taking a quizzer out of context specifically. And it could be that in the ages before we had electronic, electronically searchable material, it was kind of like, well, can the answer judge or quiz master find where this quizzer is in 30 seconds? And if it's not that obvious, then we're fine with saying they didn't go out of context. Whereas now we can search anything a quizzer says immediately and see exactly where that sequence of words appears and are now left to decide if saying X number of words in sequence takes a quizzer out of context. Um, so we're humans interpreting this vaguely defined rulebook. And that was just one example. I'm sure there are tons of examples where technology has only aided quizzing. But I, th I found it enlightening and a nice way to kind of abstract the march of technology into sports and how it's helped some sports and hindered others. See, that's interesting. So you're focusing on the application of technology and the delta that's resulted as a, uh, as a result of, of the, that process. I actually sort of interpreted it as a way of, of focusing more on the rules, um, where the more objective the rule, the better 
the the situation just overall right so like like prior to the invention of uh, or the advent of technology injection into the sport the objective rule uh was you know objective and it was really just a question of like well this is what i saw versus objectively saying like in tennis i saw the ball go here i think i saw the ball go here but it was really really fast and i can't really be sure but i'm i'm an i'm a judge so i have to make a ruling very quickly and i have to you know stick by it and then when john McEnroe, john McEnroe, was that his name yes okay when McEnroe comes over and yells at me for two or to five or 15 straight minutes or something, I basically just have to put up with it and be like, what, well, but the, yeah, I have no way to prove what happened, but here's where it, where it went. Right. Um, but with the invention of technology, it's so it, the, the rule is objective. It, it makes it easier for me to handle. Right. Um, I think the, the, the first thing I thought of when I started reading through this, the, the thread, and of course the thread starts on, uh, you know, soccer, and it talks a little bit about cricket and rugby and a few other things. Um, but the thing that was very interesting to me was in looking at cricket, they were saying, well, it, it dramatically improved cricket because a lot of the sort of um, situations where players were kind of skirting close to the rules were able to get uh, a closer, maybe over the line uh, for rules were able to get honed in and in a very objective, accurate, fair way. Uh, and so it actually improved the game as a result of it. I, I sort of imagine the same sort of thing could be said about, say, basketball, if somebody were to, you know, maybe overlay something that said, yeah, you, you know, what, what consider what's considered traveling with the ball, right? That sort of stuff. And I'm, I'm no basketball expert at all. So, you know, um, but I mean, there is, I think there is an objective standard for what is traveling that just gets missed a lot. So if you have increased technology, does that mean that you actually have a more fair uh, objective standard for, for basketball? But honestly, the first thing I thought of when I was reading through this VAR thread was uh, football. And, and at the NFL level, the, pass inter the infamous uh, pass interference uh, problem, where it seems like the NFL has basically got itself into effectively a no-win situation because basically by definition a pass interference call must be subjective like i mean there there are obviously cases where a pass interference is extraordinarily obvious right uh so you know a, a receiver's running down the field and just gets flat out tackled and while the ball is, you know, on its way to, to the receiver, I mean, obviously, okay, that's, that's clearly pass inter interference. Nobody's going to argue that, but anything short of something that obvious, it becomes essentially a judgment call, a subjective judgment call. And if you don't have the technology, the fans looking at this, uh, and the coaches and everybody, they, they have no greater perspective than the referee on the field. And so they might disagree with the referee and they might John McEnroe, the, the referee, but that's basically the end of it, right? There isn't really anything that you can do beyond that. The, but when you have the equivalent of, of, of video review, uh, and, you know, then you're now looking at these PI calls that you have to have. What's the rule in the NFL? You have to have a clear and obvious, like, overwhelming evidence, video evidence to reverse the call on the field or something. So if it's pretty closely obvious that maybe there isn't a PI call justified, but a PL 
PI call was called, then you still can't overturn the PI call, right? And it's and it's and it's basically unchallengeable. And I've I've seen teams challenge it, right, in the NFL. But it's kind of like I don't know. You're basically challenging a subjective ruling. It just seems like a, a terrible, terrible situation to be in. And so ultimately the, the, so the whole video review thing has exacerbated the problem of the subjectivity of, of pass interference. So, I mean, taking that and moving it into the context of say quizzing, like, I think there are rules that are objective, a lot of rules and the majority of rules in quizzing are objective. And because they're objective with by adding technology where we can, you know, over the course of time, uh, you know, where it's economically feasible and reasonable to do so, I think we're improving quizzing by making it more fair and removing as much as we can the human error element of from the quiz master and the answer judge, right? So, I mean, obviously the quiz master and the answer judge both want to be as fair and as accurate as possible, but we're going to, we're humans, we're going to make mistakes. And with the addition of technology, we can remove those mistakes, right? But when it comes to subjectivity in the rule set, we're basically going to make the problem worse, in a sense, we're certainly not going to make it better, right, with technology. And so to me, it's sort of like this, this um, the sort of the moral of the story is find subjective rules and delete them, uh, or, or, or basically try to try to make the rules objective. And if you can't delete them, uh, sort of stuff as a general sort of guiding principle. And that feels really wrong on its surface, you know, like if, like for a while now, I've been saying, I think the context rule should be burned with fire and destroyed and, you know, let, let's turn it into ash and throw it over our shoulder and try to forget that it ever was a thing because of that subjectivity behind it. Uh, and, or, or try to turn the rule to be more objective. But if we do that, I don't think we're going to succeed. I think we're just going to tie ourselves in knots and it feels really weird to be able to say, well, what are you going to do if you if you make that context rule go away? There are all sorts of, you know, potentially negative consequences. But honestly, I think it the consequences aren't that bad. I mean, ultimately, if you're out of context for a question uh, and there is no context rule, you still have 30 seconds to get back into context. And if, if you quote one verse and then you quote a second verse and you're able to quote the second verse and you're correct and you're not providing an incorrect answer, I don't know that there's a tremendous amount of harm that that comes from you know being able to do that i mean it rewards memorization right so i don't know i've been talking for a long time um scott what are you thinking a few thoughts um i'm reminded of our conversation about the use of sound recorders by the quiz master in rooms and how it's probably fairest if all quiz masters use them or if none of them use them um and i think that would apply because um that would apply to this conversation because that's a place where technology does absolutely help when deciding if a quizzer was word perfect on a keeper's question, for, on a finish, finish question or a quote question. Um, but if the technology is differing in different rooms, um, there could be a different standard applied um, that doesn't need to be, right? Um, one thing that I remember from the thread that I thought was written really well, it is caveated with in the worst case scenario, but I think it reads fine just without that. Um, but VAR, or video review, undermines the legitimacy of human judgment without replacing it with anything better. Far from removing arbitrary human judgment, video review simply emphasizes just how arbitrary it is, right? And that's exactly what you were saying about NFL pass interference. In game time, 
you know, a call might be made or not made and people would complain and then get over it very quickly. But in this day and age of video review, both that the officials have and that all of us fans have as well, we can see every little thing which either we can choose to have it support or go like not support our our viewpoint. But at the end of the day, it is just emphasizing the arbitrariness of human judgment because of um, how non-objective the rulebook is written on that role. And then finally, um, I'm probably not as gung-ho as you as um, to get rid of context, but I really think that um, you wouldn't have a ton of really bad consequences, um, and it would simplify things a ton. And I know that when I was a quiz master, as much as possible, I tried to rule a quizzer wrong for giving an incorrect answer or have their time run out without having given the correct answer. Um, if I was going to call them wrong before their 30 seconds had elapsed for going out of context, I wanted it to be just egregious. Um, it was way simpler for me to see if either they gave something I deemed to be incorrect, which means you don't get to keep answering, um, or your time runs out and you didn't say enough to be correct. And maybe in a small percentage of the cases, they kind of went out of context, came back into context, and then gave the right answer. And then in that scenario, I have to decide, did they go out of context? But almost, I mean, it, that was so rare. Um, so already, I'm trying to not use context if I can help it. Yeah, totally agreed. Well, uh, let's move on to the next one. So there's there's uh, several, Scott and I love reading, and um, Scott has a tremendously huge backlog of books. Um, do you keep your list of books, the sort order, like electronically? I do. I'm at about 1,200 at the moment. Uh, cool. I do not. Um, what I do is I I buy books and then I have various stacks <laughs> of books. And so what will end up happening is so so the most infamous stack of, of all the stacks of books that I have is the stack that is the closest to uh, the side of my bed on my bedside table. And what ends up happening is when I acquire a new book, it typically, I get very excited. It typically goes on the top of that stack because then I reach for that book when I am in bed ready to read something. And then I acquire a different book that goes on top of the previous book. Usually when I'm about halfway through the, the, the previous book. And as a result, I, I've read many, many books uh, maybe the first 50% of those books, but very, f not, well, not few, much fewer than the, the total number have I read all the way to the very end. Um, but I also constantly resort my books all the time. So, you know, at least once every couple of weeks, I'm looking through other stacks and being like, Ooh, I really want to finish that one. And I'll move it over to the bedside table and put it on the top of the stack. Um, which of course just exacerbates the problem. But anyway, one of the books that I have read all the way through and am, I liked it so much. I, I forget how many years ago I, I read it. I think I read it when it w first came out. Um, but I'm rereading it again is a book called good to great, which is intended to be a book for people who run businesses basically. Uh, but it is such an important book and such a valuable book that I think it's actually got a lot of, of relevant information and relevant suggestions to that are applicable just way beyond, you know, business. I think they're applicable in a lot of different things, both per personally and professionally. And I think also in quizzing. And I just want to be sure, Scott, good to great is in your list. I think you've already read it though, right? I have read it. I did not enjoy it. It made no impression on me, but because of you talking about it and 
it pops up all the time um, in things that I read. I want to go back and give it another try and just maybe I was in a immature or unready state of mind or something when I read it the first time. Do you remember uh, how when you read it? Do you remember how old you were? Um, it was within the last five years, but probably closer to five years ago than present day. Okay. Okay. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, it would be it would be interesting to see you know how you're how you how you'd react to it a second time through. I mean, it's it's um, I wouldn't say it's great literature. I just think it has some very interesting ideas. And one of the things that it talks about is uh, one of the reasons why a company is and they talk about basically they're talking about companies what does it take to take a good company a company that you know is profit positive it's doing okay but it's just kind of you know lumbering along that kind of thing what happens to take that company and move it from this sort of state of good into an exponentially growing company a great company a you know a foundation company right and one of the things they talk about is uh, this idea of leaders of the company, CEOs, who basically aren't recognized almost intentionally, right? It's the, and they contrast that with CEOs that, that almost seek after recognition. And they talk about uh, this idea that if you've, one of, the, one of the ways that a company goes from good to great is a leader who, in, in fact, almost shies away from recognition as and instead is actively looking to just try to make the company better instead of looking at the at the company as a vehicle for making them seem more important uh that sort of thing i don't know if i'm describing that right but does that make sense scott it does make sense i don't i don't know if i have much to add i did look it up i it was actually a decade ago i read it in um april of 2009 See, that's pretty cool that you're tracking such things. I, I couldn't tell you what books I was reading three months ago. Uh, I have no <laughs> idea. They're, they, they've been read. They're, they are in a different stack now. Um, that, that's all I know. I'm not sure that that data has come in very handy, except for this one instant. But well, you know, it's data. Data's cool. It's very data cool. for data's sake. Is data for data's sake is not a bad thing. Uh, I, I think there's, cause you never know, right? You never know when some data might be really useful. So tracking it is, if it's not particularly onus, onerous to track, then it's like, why not? You know, it's, and maybe it becomes useful. Um, anyway, so when it comes to quizzing, the idea of a leader who isn't recognized, like I'm always very, uh, I don't know, put off, I guess is the, uh, maybe I'm put off by pastors in particular. So this isn't really related to quizzing, I guess, directly, but I'm put off by pastors who seem to want to pastor in such a way that they get recognition for how awesome of a pastor they are, as opposed to pastors who, despite, you know, standing up and speaking in front of a group, just don't care about the credits or the accolades or anything and are truly interested in how do I minister to my congregation better? How do we make our church better? You know, these things uh, in and of themselves are the goal rather than, than the result of the recognition, the accolades behind it. And so similarly, when it comes to quizzing, I, I kind of get a little, I don't know, not annoyed, but uh, I don't know. I get uncomfortable around areas where leaders are uh, sort of looking for recognition. There was a time, and I, 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 I don't know, it, it's just so long ago, and I don't think this doesn't happen anymore, so I feel like it's, it's okay to talk about. But um, th this was, I don't know, 15 plus years ago, and I, it was at Great West, and I ended up winning an award for, like, best coach or something. 
And I was felt so deeply uncomfortable. Um, and I remember, I remember turning to our district director or district coordinator or whatever, uh, when they announced my name and I, I shot him this look of like, what do I do? And, and he was like, yeah, go, go, go up, go, go get it. And I'm like, okay. But it just felt wrong because it was kind of like, we're here to recognize the achievements of quizzers, not the, not the coaches, not the, not the quiz masters, not the leadership. I mean, you thank them, right? You you thank the, the folks who volunteer certainly, but to single them out like that, I don't know. It just felt, it made me feel really uncomfortable, but I don't know. What do you think, uh, Scott? Yeah. I feel like those awards are often quizzer um, inspired or started and it's often given to something other than, I don't know. I don't, I don't think there are rigorous criteria that would be a bad thing that they're used to award it to a coach, but yeah, no, I mean, I'm sure it was really just a, you know, somebody's opinion somewhere, but I don't know. It just felt like it drew away from the context of the, the value of what we were trying to achieve. Um, but it may just be, you know, a Griffin hang up. So I'm, I'm fine with living about living with it that way. One of the other ideas, uh, that, that comes out of good to great is, um, the sort of the question of, uh, what can you do to make whatever it is that you're working on? So in their context, the company, what can you do to make the company, uh, 1% better today, which of course, you know, as a CEO, maybe you have the power to do that. And then you just sort of add, uh, orders of magnitude, or I guess remove orders of magnitude, depending upon the context of where you have influence. So you could say like, if I am a, you know, junior software engineer in a particular group within this large company, what is something that I can do, uh, right now today that will make my group one per, or the project that I'm working on 1% better? Or is there something that I can do that will help my division or my team be like 0.1% better today? Or is there something that I can do to make the company like 0.001% better today? That kind of thing. So, you know, when it comes to quizzing, I think there's an, an analogy here, not an analogy, a parallel to say, or to ask the question, what can I do today? Like something right now that is not like something I have to work on for, you know, three weeks, but something I can do right now, I can accomplish it today that will make me or my quiz team 1% better. Uh, what's something that I can do that will make our church's uh, quiz program like, you know, 1% better or 0.1% better? What is something that I can do to make P&W quizzing, you know, 0.1 or 0.01% better today? You know, that kind of stuff. And then just kind of keep doing that every single day and you start getting uh, exponential uh, returns. I mean, that's a great, great principle to keep in mind because it m keeps it manageable. You don't have to say like, do this big thing overnight or you failed. It says, hey, can you do something small? Um, and it also, in a way, places responsibility, right? If you have the ability to do this small thing and you don't do it, then um, there's some amount of kind of personal accountability there. And I like, I like both of those things because oftentimes getting started is the hardest thing towards improvement in an area. Yes, indeed. Well, and part of it is also the the reoccurrence of it, right? So making yourself 1% better uh, in quizzing may just mean, you know, memorizing a verse. Um, that in and of itself is absolutely an improvement, but by itself isn't going to get you very far. 
so you the the key to the one percent theory is that you know you do one percent today and then you do one percent tomorrow and then you 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 know you do one percent the next day and so on and by doing that that's where you 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 attri- you basically gain these massive massive improvements and so people see the massive improvements and they're they're blown away by like wow look how good this person is at quizzing uh, but it really all just comes down to these tiny incremental but sustained incremental movements happening every day. So then kind of another idea that we were talking about was the the depth versus breadth uh, argument. So, you know, when, when it comes to quizzing, do you go really deep on, say, a chapter or two and skip everything else and then focus all your attention on those chapters? Or do you instead try to generally memorize everything, but, you know, maybe kind of shallow across the entire material set? Uh, so, Scott, what are your thoughts on this one? Well, unfortunately for our listeners, I think we have very similar thoughts. But my big thought is that, or my strongest thought is depth um, really, really is where you win. Um, It's not knowing some about a lot of stuff. It's can you be the best in your district or the best in CMA quizzing at a thing? Because if you can, then you can dominate that thing. And depending on how big that thing is, right, if that thing is interrogatives and you dominate it. Um, you can score whatever you want at any meet. <laughs> if that thing is um, challenging, um, it has a very limited usefulness, right? Um, but you can it still has value, and definitely being the best at it um, has value. Um, but I, I think that that principle of trying to say, like, how can I be the top five in my district at this specific question type or in my memory of this specific chapter? I think those things will go a lot farther than um, maybe memorizing beyond your um, motivation or ability level and kind of knowing eight chapters or something like that or the whole material, but just really loosely knowing it. Yeah, completely agreed. I mean, my my suggestion would be to go deep on a few things and go shallow on lots of things. So like like have a general uh memorization of everything as best you can, but then go deep on a few things. So like uh find some chapters that you want to just totally own and just go deep on those chapters and really really know them. Uh that will do more for you than kind of lightly skimming the material across the entire material set. Uh, and especially, you know, in the way that we run statistics, the the latest chapters, uh, if you can get, a, you know, some number of the latest chapters, you know, totally owned, totally memorized, uh, you're going to do a lot better than having all of the new chapters uh, be kind of memorized. Yeah, that one's kind of a simple one. Oh, another thought that I had, This this is more applicable to life than quizzing but if you're really really good at one thing well that's great there might be a lot of other people good at that one thing but if you're good at really good at two things um very quickly there's not very many people who are also good at those two specific things um and i don't know what those what an example of those two things would be in quizzing i mean if we're using question types as an example there's only like five or six of them right um so an intersection of being really good at those isn't too great, but um, you could definitely say if if I'm one of the best 10 multiple answer quizzers in my district and one of the best 10 um, quote questions, um, that can be very, very valuable when it comes to um, scoring and helping my team out, Um, much more so than um, being top 
30 in every single question type, for example. So there again is focusing on depth over breadth where you can, um, but then getting a little bit of breadth. So keep it shallow, but it's great to read through the whole material. Like let's say you're only going to memorize two chapters in a year. Well, you should still read through the whole material, but you shouldn't try to quote as much of the whole material as you can to the detriment of the two like chapters that you're going to focus on. Yeah, totally. Well, and then, uh, oh, I completely lost my train of thought. Oh, well, never mind. Maybe it'll come back to me. Oh, I remember, uh, captains, right? So the idea is you're basically drawing a Venn diagram of your skills, right? And so just like Scott said, like, you know, you draw one circle of your Venn diagram, you say, well, a lot of people have that skill. And then you draw another circle and well, a lot of people have that skill and you draw another circle and a lot of people have that skill. And what you really ought to be doing is actually looking at the intersection of all three of those skills, because ultimately the more you sort of skill compound within that center and everybody has multiple skills, right? Um, you know, they're slightly different. Your, your, your sort of skill matrices is, are going to be a little bit different than mine or Scott's or whatever. And certainly they're going to overlap some, but where you are unique in your combinations of skills and your, your, your gifts, really, that's an area where you can leverage those for greatness. So, you know, if you happen to be somebody who has a pretty good work ethic in terms of memorization, you're able to motivate yourself to memorize on a, on a fairly regular schedule, and you actually have uh, the ability to encourage other people, like that's kind of in your wheelhouse to encourage other people, you might have the beginnings of being a really great captain. Uh, you know, that, and that's something that is not, you know, it's not super rare, but it's definitely not super common. Right. And the more you add those sorts of skills on top of it, the more you can be of greater value to your team, your, your church program and quizzing overall. Absolutely true. And another one that we, another kind of high level concept that we were, we have in our notes is process over results. And that is really focusing on the process of what you're doing and not being too swayed by the results that you get um, as long as you're always analyzing that process to make sure that it's uh, sound. So I'll use, let's say, finish this questions as an example. There might not be very many in a year. There might be 20 if your district has a list. And even if there isn't a list and you make it yourself, there might be no more than 40 or 50. And you can sort that list alphabetically and see how many of them start with the same words. And you can do the work to find out maybe if I jump at one and a half syllables, I should know 85% of them. And I'm just making these numbers up, but I think they'll be pretty close to the ballpark. Um, And so if you then decide, well, let me go jump at one and a half syllables in every quiz on finish this questions. If you do that and you get um, one and a half syllables and every single one that you jump on was in the 15% that you wouldn't be able to know and then you guessed wrong on it and got it wrong, you shouldn't then decide that jumping at one and a half syllables is bad. Um, you can make, there are many different decisions that you can make based off of this. You could say like, you know what, I'm totally fine jumping at a speed that will get me 85% right. You could say, you know what, I want to jump at a speed that will get me 100% right. And then maybe you need to jump at two and a half syllables on those. Um, but that's focusing on the process part of it. What can you control? Like you can control what you memorize. So if you jump one and a half syllables and you get stuff that you should know and you are not able to quote it correctly, then you know that your material needs more work. 
Um, but it's knowing the difference between is this something that I can control or is this something that I can't control um, and letting that knowledge guide your future study. Yeah, totally agreed. So this, for me, kind of raises the idea of stock market investing. So I do a, a fair bit of stock market investing. And, you know, when you're working in that sort of universe, you can't be right all the time. Like, like it's impossible to be right all the time. And so you're going to be making mistakes. You're going to actually even more common. You're going to be in a situation where you make absolutely no mistakes, but things still don't go your way. And I think that has a parallel in quizzing. So like you, you're studying the market, you're studying a particular company, you're doing your due diligence. You've got a strategy or a set of strategies that you're working with. You do all of your analysis properly. You make the right call and then something happens and the market goes the opposite direction of what you thought it would. Right. Uh, these things happen all the time. They don't happen most of the time, but they do happen, right? And so you can be in a losing situation even though you did everything right. So, I mean, the whole wives in the same way, you know, question, you can do everything right and still get a question wrong. Uh, that happens, right? Um, you can time your jump. You could be like, okay, I think I've got the cadence of the quiz master. Here's what I'm going to do. And you can do everything correctly and jump exactly when you thought was the right time. And what you thought was the right time, you know, structurally should have been the right time. But just because of the, you know, the quiz master changed their pace just a little bit, that one question, or the type of question was a little bit different. The wording was a little bit different. Uh, and you didn't get quite as much material out of the quiz master's mouth as you thought you uh, would, and you end up airing. Uh, I've seen a lot of quizzers who, you know, take that very seriously and they get really down on themselves, but I would caution you not to do that. If you made the choices and those choices are valid, uh, stick with them. Don't feel like you have to edit your choices. If there's, you know, you encounter some occasional, uh, bad throws of the dice, you know, kind of stuff. What ends up happening in stock market investing, you, you see these investors where if one or two trades end up going poorly for them, let's, they, they, let's say they do 10 trades and two of them go poorly. They second guess their strategy because of those two poor trades and the next 10 trades, they get like six of the trades wrong, you know, that kind of thing. So don't let yourself fall into that trap. Focus on tweaking to the best of your ability, the process, your prep, your, your strategy, uh, and then just let the results handle themselves. The thing is, as you're getting better and better in quizzing, you're going to be getting, you're going to get you're going to get closer and closer to that line of the tennis court of where the ball goes inbounds or out of bounds, right? Um, the better the tennis player, the more they're hitting the ball as close to that line as possible without going out, right? It's the junior tennis player that hits the ball into the middle of the court, right? Because then they're assured to be able to get the ball into the middle of the court. So as you get better at quizzing, you are, you are going to encounter an increasing number of errors but that's necessary so that you can be, you know, more on the edge and be more of an elite quizzer in that process. So take that, take that to heart. Yeah. When I quizzed, I always wanted for every error that I made, I wanted to know why, right? It could be, I didn't jump at the speed that I wanted to. I jumped too quickly. It could be, I jumped at the exact speed I wanted to and 
I hadn't, I didn't know the material, which means that I need to study more. <laughs> like it was, it was key material that I didn't know, or I jumped at the exact speed that I wanted. It wasn't key yet. I knew some percentage wouldn't be key yet at this speed, um, and I did not make the correct guess. Well, the first two, there are things that I can do. I can get more precise in my jumping, and I can study more. For the third one, there's nothing I can do. Right? I can just decide. Am I fine with you know? As, as I said before, like what percentage of the, of the questions will I not be able to get at this speed? Um, in the district, I tried to push that percentage as close as I could to zero. But at a meet like internationals, it's probably north of 25% or even higher. And I think um, some of the like biggest value that I was able to bring in internationals when I coached was first going through the, the various question types and figuring out what is the prudent speed, right? What's a speed that is the best balance of winning jumps and getting a high enough accuracy to score well. But then once we were in the meet, whenever quizzers jumped and got airs, which, I mean, if you're getting 60% right at a meet at internationals, you're doing great, which means 40 that's a lot of airs. 40% of them are going to be airs. And I would have to tell the quizzers, you know, you jumped at the exact right speed, your mature knowledge is not lacking, and that just wasn't one that we're going to get. But you just have to be told that over and over and over again. Otherwise, you're like, oh, I made another error. I made another error. And some of the question types, you kind of have to push the speed even higher. So maybe you're only getting 55% right or something like that. And as a quizzer, it can be really, really easy to lose heart and say something has to be wrong. Um, and it takes a lot of faith in um, the process. Yes, indeed. All right. Well, with that, we should uh, draw things to a close. But if uh, any of you have any sort of questions or thoughts or additional ideas or even better disagreements about anything that we've talked about in this or any episode of Inside Quizzing, we would very much like to hear from you. Please email us at iq at cbqz.org. So iq inside quizzing at cbqz.org. We would very much like to hear from you. You can also follow us on Twitter. Uh, our Twitter account is at inside quizzing. And um, Scott, after the podcast, can you uh, is can you retweet that whole uh, var thread? Uh, we can give people a link to that maybe in the uh, in the, our Twitter account, right? Yeah, we can definitely do that. Very cool. All right. Well, with that said, uh, thanks all for listening and thanks, Scott. Thanks for listening, everyone. See you later. Mm -hmm.